Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to you all virtually or uh, in-house or in situ. Um, my name is Alison McGuire. I'm chair of the uh, Department of Health Policy. And it's my great pleasure for tonight's LSE Health uh, Annual Lecture to introduce Hans Kluger, who, of course, is the Regional Director for Europe for the World Health Organization. And if there's anybody who knows anything about uh, preparedness for health system, preparedness for any eventuality, it's Hans, who has had a very varied career, both globally and within the WHO. And um, I, I'm not going to sing his praises too much. I'm just going to hand over to Hans in a moment. Uh, if you want to follow it on Twitter, it's hashtag LSE Health. Uh, Hans is going to, to talk for around about 40, 45 minutes. And then we'll open it up to questions, both virtually and from the floor. So without further ado, Hans, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Maguire, and good evening, everyone, here in the room and virtually connected. I must say it's a great honor for me and a great prestige to be among all of you. I have the honor to be a visiting professor, but to give the annual health lecture, of course, is of a special category. And that's why I thought carefully about the theme of the presentation, which, as you see on the slide, is about the new norm. We're living in a new normal, a dual-track approach to health strategy and policy. Actually, I must say that right now, when I'm standing in front of you, it is rather with mixed feelings. Because one week ago, the earth in southern Turkey and northern Syria has been shaked as never before in the last century, still with the number of casualties rising. Tomorrow evening, straight from here, I proceed for the fifth time since the war in Ukraine to Ukraine, including the front line, with a devastating war which reaches a sad commemoration milestone of one year. And my condolences, first and foremost, to all the victims and their families in Turkey, North Syria, Ukraine. But at the same time, I'm a born optimist, so I feel a lot of hope when I see in Ukraine, in the neighboring countries, in Turkey, in Northwest Syria, the doctors and the nurses at the front line in the most apocalyptic circumstances doing their duty, having sworn the oath of Hippocrates. When I became region director three years ago, there was actually no major crisis in the WHO European region. Now we have several. We are living in what we call actually permacrisis, which in the Collins Dictionary is the word of the year 2022. It's a portmanteau of permanent and of crisis. The way to tackle the new normal is through a dual-track approach. It means that our health systems, at the one hand, have to be on constant readiness and alert 
for new emergencies and to be better prepared, but at the same time, be able to deal with the day-to-day -day essential health services, which actually didn't happen during the COVID-19. The underlying principle should be to leave no one behind. For myself, social justice has been the foundation of my entire career. Whether I worked as a general practitioner in the Fisher villages in Belgium, or with Médecins Sans Frontières during the Civil War in Liberia and Somalia, to being the regional director of the WHO Regional Office for Europe. And I'm going to try to demonstrate this dual track approach in my presentation in three parts. I will say something on the current emergencies. Then I will say something, where are we with SDG, Sustainable Development Goal 3? To go to the third part, how can we get to the dual track approach? So the earthquake in Turkey and northwest Syria, actually our people tomorrow will go with quite some convoys through Gaziantep in Turkey to northwest Syria because that is where the situation is the most, well, most difficult, let's say. The immediate needs are still trauma or emergency care, but quickly evolves into access to primary health care, putting a lot of attention to reproductive health services because the women and children are often left behind. Mental health and rehabilitation. But for sure, the number of casualties still will be on the increase. Again, example of the most vulnerable being the hit hardest. The devastating war in Ukraine, tomorrow I will go for the fifth time since the war. About 18 million people in Ukraine, more than one third of the population is in need of humanitarian assistance. Seven million people are forcibly internally displaced in the country. Another seven million are registered as refugees in the neighboring countries of origin. The WHO has verified now more than 760 attacks on healthcare, which is a clear breach of international humanitarian law. Health should never be a target. One out of three people have it now difficult in the country to pay for medicines to treat chronic diseases, the non-communicable diseases, and mental health obviously is a very big condition. The attacks on the civilian energy infrastructure are directly and indirectly attacks on healthcare. This is a slide from the last time in November when I went there during the winter in Dnipro, at the front line, receiving the most traumatized soldiers every night. There were 200 people at the ventilator. And the hospital was going to run out in three hours of electricity. We were just in time to provide the generator that the surgeon here, heroic surgeon, could continue the surgery. My point is that the winter is not finished yet. It's still going to last at least for two more months. So international assistance and avoiding fatigue is crucial. Third one, acute phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're getting out of the acute phase, touch wood. Very important to strengthen further the surveillance. But remember that modern medicine and public health is a lot about preventing 
painful and debilitating disease. In this case, long COVID. We did quite some work on that one with Professor Martin McKee of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and his team. In our region alone, we estimate about 17 million people with long COVID who have difficulty to get out of their bed in the morning, who have difficulty to function normally, and we don't know yet too much about it. We need more biomedical research. We need collaboration beyond the health sector, the social sector, the unemployment benefits. COVID-19 was a good reminder of leaving no one behind. Who got the vaccines first? Is it going to change if we have another one tomorrow? Fourth emergency in our region. Remember, I was telling three years ago there were zero of that scale. Poliomyelitis, which is pumping up in different countries. Here it is crucial to keep a very high vaccination coverage rate and again to strengthen the surveillance, not at least through wastewater, environmental surveillance. Having said that, there is another event which created a lot of nervosity at one stage, which we didn't know so much about. The monkeypox, which then was labeled Mpox, which ultimately became quite a success story. So sometimes, as a public health folks, I feel we do not celebrate enough our successes because there was so much nervosity. Why Mpox here in this region and not only in Sub-Saharan Africa? Actually, we wrote a joint op-ed at that time with Dr. Anthony Fauci, where we were comparing some lessons with the early days of HIV-AIDS transmission. And I think the success, among others, of the MPOX was number one, that a few vaccines and treatments were really targeted at the high-risk populations, number one. And number two, that we empowered entrusted messengers in the community to provide information to the high-risk groups. The first thing that we did in Copenhagen at the seat of the regional office was to invite the director of the European Pride organizations and have a joint press conference. Because the worst what could happen in the days of the MPOX, like it was in HIV AIDS in the early days, is the stigma and discrimination where people will not come forward and go to the health services. I will finish here the chapter, my first chapter on the emergencies. Am I still optimistic? Yes. From our side, we try to be very proactive and prepare the region better for future emergencies. Two years ago, I created the independent Pan-European Commission on Health and Sustainable Development to rethink policy priorities in the light of pandemics. All of you must know about a lot of committees and groups on learning lessons from the pandemic for better preparedness. But this one was a bit different, not a bit, was quite different for a number of reasons. The first one, it took into account the lessons learned from the COVID-19, but was not solely focused on better emergency preparedness. It was looking at how to get back on track with the Sustainable Development Goals, the dual track, both emergency preparedness and health and well-being. 
Number two, a majority of the commissioners were from the non-health sector. Because the problem that WHO had is how to convince the Minister of Finance and heads of state of the case for investing in health and health systems. We tried actually during the global economic crisis and we went some way, but still we had difficult to convince the Minister of Finance on the case to invest in health and health systems because we used the health language. When we got a number of Ministers of Finance on board and we asked them how to change our language, they were telling Hans, you guys in the health sector are using a very complicated language. We, Ministers of Finance, we use much more simple language. Basically, we have vocabulary of only about 25 expressions. <laughs> and they all boil down to the word no. <laughs> so the trick is how to boil down to the word yes. I have to give a lot of credit to the president of the Pan-European Commission, Professor Mario Monti, who I know is also listening in. Grazie mille, caro Mario, thank you so much for your uncontested leadership because they were very high profile commissioners in the commission, a lot outside of the health sector. You know, Professor Monti has been prime minister in Italy, European commissioner, world-renowned economist, and really helped us how to formulate the recommendation towards heads of state, prime ministers in a acceptable language. I remember the Sunday, the first time I called Professor Monti, Professor Monti told Dr. Glube, I'm sure you have a wrong phone number because I'm not from the health sector. I say, Professor Monti, that's exactly why we need you. And I think as public health officials and future public health leaders, this is very important. The communication. Step out of your comfort zone. Now, let's go to the second part of my presentation, to the Sustainable Development Goals. I'm sure the majority of you know that the Sustainable Development Goals, we have 17, they are interlinked, and they're <coughs> aiming by the year 2030 to end poverty, bring peace and prosperity to all people, low, middle, high income countries, according to the three dimensions of sustainable development, economic development, social inclusion and environmental protection. Of course, we're very proud. We have the SDG number three on health and well-being. I picked two examples. The first one is non-communicable diseases. Why I picked it? Because COVID-19 has been the most visible pandemic of our lifetime, but is not the most preventable nor the most deadly. Even when we had COVID-19 at its worst, the cardiovascular disease pandemic was killing twice as many people as COVID-19 did, and even people at the average younger age. The good news is that to push back the cardiovascular disease pandemic, we do not need heroic medical innovations like we did for the COVID-19. 
we do have the public health tools which we know are working. In WHO jargon, we call them the NCD best buys. We know the three most deadly and preventable drivers of heart attacks and strokes. Number one, tobacco. Number two, hypertension. Number three, air pollution. The first thing to do is to kill the tobacco, tobacco epidemic. We know that every 10% increase in tobacco taxes, the consumption decreases with 4%, and with 8% in children and lower income groups. And we have enough evidence now that those taxes are not regressive. The only thing which kills single-handedly more people than tobacco is hypertension. And we are doing an awful job on preventing and managing hypertension. For this, we need political will. Because the sodium intake by adding salt to your food only amounts up to 10% of your daily sodium intake. So there is a need for the political will to work with the industry to decrease sodium in packaged and processed foods. Even if we prevent hypertension, we need to do a better job on managing hypertension. Because one third of the people who know they have hypertension do not take regularly their treatment. If we speak about the hypertension, we also speak about obesity. Childhood obesity is another big challenge. One out of three children in primary schools in origin are overweight or obese. We are competing for the bad medal there with the United States. Alcohol is another one. We are by far the heaviest drinkers in the world. And now we have evidence that there is no safe level of drinking. Previously was the rule of two. We have enough evidence there is no safe level. Many women are not aware that from the first drop the risk for breast cancer increases. One out of four deaths in young people in our region are linked with alcohol intake. And alcohol taxes are the most underused alcohol policy tool in our region. And then the third preventable driver of cardiovascular disease is air pollution. Particulate matters, smaller than 2.5 micron, kills about 500,000 people in our region. A year half of this of cardiovascular diseases. This is on the chronic diseases, non-communic diseases. The good news, remember, start and finish with good news, is that it does not need heroic medical innovation. It needs political and societal will. Communicable diseases. There are only two regions in the world where the number of new HIV infections is on the rise. Our region, unfortunately, one of them. And we did a bit of modeling with IHME in Seattle, in Washington, with different scenarios. One scenario is, you see the orange line, which is not a good one, is that the number will further increase. The best scenario is the lower one, after 2020, which is a decrease thanks to increased access to antiretrovirals and prevention in key population groups.
again, what we need is a political will to scale prevention policies in targeted risk groups. Men having sex with men, sex workers, also risk groups, migrants, prisoners, and their sexual partners. And not forgetting that those projects were done pre-COVID-19. And we know that during the COVID-19, up to 50% of the testing for HIV was scaled down in a number of countries. These are only two examples. There are many other ones which came on our radar if we speak about health and well-being since COVID-19. One of them will be no surprise for many of you is mental health. At any given point in time, one out of eight adolescents in our region has a diagnosable mental health condition. The top mental health conditions in our youth are anxiety and depression. So now I will go to the third part of my presentation. I spoke, remember, about the emergencies. I spoke about the sustainable development goals. And a health system, basically, has to be able to address both. To manage the emergencies, to be better prepared, but to move forward on the health and well-being and scale up towards the sustainable development goals, SDG 3, by the year 2030. What is needed to do so is the dual-track approach. How do we plan together? Many of the critical issues in our health systems, be it unmet needs, fatigue of the health workforce, overcrowded ICU units, are not new. Basically, the COVID-19 exposed those cracks in the health system pre-COVID-19 and exacerbated them. Ultimately, the key to come to resilient, sustainable, agile health systems is that there is a loss of trust in our health system. And we speak about three important relationships. The first important relationship is a lack of trust by the public in our health system. That people don't get or don't find their way to get the healthcare when they need and where they need. And remember, they have a lot of fake news on their head as well. And it creates a loss of trust by the public in the health system and the politicians, which in turn undermines the solidarity principle on which our European social model is built. Second important relationship, loss of trust by the healthcare workers in the health system. They do not feel valued. You see what's happening in many health systems in our region. And that's a tremendous challenge it gives to retain the health workforce. I was informed at the British Medical Association this morning, where we had a round table presided by the President, Professor McGee, that in the UK, 20% decrease in applications for the nurses. We know from our survey in Spain that up to 80% among the nurses have burnout or risk of burnout. And the third important relationship, if you speak about loss of trust in the health system, is 
loss of trust by the politicians in the system. Because they think that the health system is not capable to absorb innovations like digital innovations, is not providing the care according to the needs and the expectations of the people. And that's too bad because then they are very reluctant to invest in our health systems. What it means, dear colleagues, dear friends, is that it's urgent that we put the people in the center of our healthcare. The starting point is that healthcare, public health in the 21st century, is to be delivered through a partnership between the health workers who increasingly are working as a team instead of alone, and the patients and their carers, who, let's not forget, are increasingly well informed by the internet, by wearable devices, by information technology, well informed or fakely informed. The challenge then is to ensure, as you see in the middle balloon on the slide, that we need the right people with the right skills being brought together in the right place at the right time to deliver care which is appropriate and convenient to the patient. And this is underpinned by two premises, trust and transformation. If the health system will transform in such a way, it will regain the trust by the healthcare workers because they will feel valued. It's about money, but not all about the money. We will regain the trust by the public into the health system that if people contribute, they are reassured that they will not be left behind the moment that they need healthcare. And we will regain trust by the politicians who will see a bang for the buck if they invest in health systems. This, my dear friends, is the first premise, trust. The second is transformation. And the transformation of the system has to come through the principle of co-creation. To create it together, not top-down. Co-creation means that those at the front line have to identify and articulate the solutions, the healthcare workers and the patients. And then the role of the government and the local health authorities is to support, to implement solutions, recognizing inevitable resource constraints. The WHO Regional Office for Europe is going to organize the five-yearly ministerial conference 12 and 13 December this year in Tallinn, Estonia, on this matter, in line with the Tallinn Charter. And this will also be a paradigm shift. Instead of putting the building blocks of the health system first, pharmaceuticals and workforce and governance, no, 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 to put the nurse there, to tell her story, to put the patient there in the suburbs of Paris, of wherever. And then invite through co-creation to come up with the solutions. Now you may say, this guy has easy to talk on the slide. It's quite theoretical. But remember, we are born optimists. So, more than 50% of my time, I'm traveling to the countries. We have 53 in our region. And there are incredible examples. 
Let's first look at the left side of the slide with two pictures, the bus and the social care worker and the nurse. This is from a rural area in Kazakhstan, Isik, where we launched a primary healthcare demonstration platform, where for the first time community care is being delivered through a multidisciplinary team, including psychologists and social workers, instead of mono-profile practice. And I remember I went there in the midst of the COVID-19. The doctors and nurses had their mask, but I saw their eyes shining. And there was a doctor who came and said, Dr. Hans, since we have multidisciplinary teams, my work became much more meaningful. Because before, I always had one child, the same child coming back with the same pneumonia. The only thing I could do was to prescribe antibiotics after diagnosis. Diagnose, prescribe. Diagnose, prescribe. No, since the multidisciplinary team was there, there was a map of community organizations, NGOs providing social support. The father got unemployment benefits. The mum was helped with a job in daycare. And the environment in which the child was living was changing. My job, the doctor told, became so much more meaningful because we could finally address the root cause of the pneumonia. The right side of the slide, with the red stethoscope, is from Vesterbutten. I'm not sure who of you know Vesterbutten. Before I went there, I certainly had no clue. It's a region in the north of Sweden, as large as Switzerland, with one person living per square kilometer. Very impressive. And this is in between primary health care and secondary care. It's almost like an emergency medical room, completely operated by nurses. And the patient with the broken leg, trauma, they did all the examinations. And you see on the screen there, the doctor who was making the diagnosis 500 kilometers further. They had stethoscopes that you put on the chest of the patient that the doctor was doing auscultation from 500 kilometers further. Digital health in action. The patients were very happy because they did not feel left alone. They knew I break my leg, I have a car accident. The governor is going to send the helicopter and take me over there to their beloved nurses. The healthcare workers felt very valued because they were entrusted on increasing their profile of duties. And the politicians were very happy because the patients were voting for them, because they were happy with the health system. Everyone happy. Trust and transformation. The key issue is how to scale up those innovations. My dear friends, I'm going to the end of my talk so that you will have some time to ask me difficult questions. But I thought to add one more slide because I know there are many students or PhD students and I was thinking to share something from myself because this question often comes. Leaving no one behind, social justice is my motto is the motto of the vision for health and well-being in the region. 
And what we need as clinical doctor, as public health leader, is science and hope. Science is so important. We saw that the countries which were following the science did much better during the COVID-19 pandemic. So the work that the London School of Economics is doing here, the work that you are doing, is of capital importance. Hold science high. At the same time, my experience, having worked in some of the most difficult places on earth during the war in Somalia, in Liberia, five years in Myanmar under the military regime, where I have to give a lot of credit to my personal advisor, my spouse, Katerina, who is here with me, still supporting me until today at annual health lectures of LSE. Or in North Korea, when I was working, is that you need hope. This is something that I learned in the previous gulags in Siberia, where I was establishing the TB control program for two years. Nadezda umrait paslenia. Hope dies the last. Never surround yourself by people who put you down or who tell that there is no hope. There is always hope. If you combine science and hope, you will see what happened yesterday here on the picture. Miracles. A baby of seven months taken from under the rubble in southern Turkey. 140 hours of frost, of snow, of rain, no food, no liquid. And the baby is surviving. Because those Turkish rescue teams, rescue teams refused, unlike some other teams, to give up. Because they told there is still hope. The pessimist will say, yes, Dr. Hans, okay, but it's one child from the many. Every single life is priceless. And if we believe that, that will be the moment that we're going to leave no one behind. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hans. Uh, very optimistic ending. Um, and you've softened up the audience now, so they won't give you difficult questions. Um, so it's open to the floor now, and uh, I'll take a question from the front here. Could you, could you say who you are, just to help Hans locate where you're coming from? Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, Bernard Casey, once of this place, once of the OECD and various other places. I want to come to the notion of investment that you use, but I also want to refer to a concept which was floating around in various parts of your discussion, which was about trust. Um, I, in the years of COVID, have been writing and reviewing quite a lot about the role of social capital. So capital is something which one sort of invests in, hence the invest at the bottom of your, I think, almost last slide. Um, 
Social capital trust in systems seems to be highly important as far as you are concerned and it's one of the things which you suggest or imply we should invest in. Could you talk a little bit more about how we can invest in this trust which is vital for success? And I just to note on that that when I was talking about this is trust in the case of infectious diseases. Um, can one use social capital also to deal with those non-communicable diseases which are as much of a pest, if not more so? Thank you very much. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Hi, thank you for a really lovely talk. Um, my name is Aline, I'm studying global health policy. Um, we spoke about co-creation and how doctors, patients and their carers can come together to voice their opinions and their concerns about the healthcare system and work together to make it better. Has anything like that been previously done and is there any evidence that's worked and are there any new or current, current emerging um, platforms that give voice for patients to advocate, um, advocate for patients or give voice for medical professionals to um, give their opinion on how health systems can be improved? Thank you. Hi, thank you for your talk. It was very interesting. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on the interaction between geopolitics and health policy and outcomes, whether that be directly from acute crises like Russia-Ukraine that you mentioned, or more structural competition in multilateral institutions such as your own. So thank you very much, sir, for uh, indeed trust and transformation. These are two keywords. So how to invest in trust? To take a positive example, the seat of the regional office of WHO for Europe and Central Asia is in Copenhagen in Denmark, a region of 53 countries. The vaccination rate is among the highest, above 95%, which has to do really by the trust of the people in their government. In Scandinavia there is a very high trust, corruption is relatively low. So you see a direct correlation over there. The risk communication during COVID-19 was pretty impressive. was very transparent. was the same face. Dr. Søren Brøstrøm did an awesome job, Director General of the National uh, Danish Health Board. And they were telling what they knew and what they didn't know. Not trying to make up something. Which several of you may remember, a, a very difficult moment during the COVID-19 pandemic was with the AstraZeneca vaccine and uh, some side effects. They were very straightforward in what they knew every day or twice a day and updating. So people did not feel fooled. The challenge, as we know, is if there starts to be a discrepancy between political decisions and science and evidence, like we saw in a number of countries which goes back a little bit to the question of the geopolitics. We were also ourselves confronted with that one as WHO, as a World Health Organization. 
what I learned there is to increase trust in public institutions, which is terribly important, be WHO or the US Center of Disease Control, which had a huge issue as, a, as well, be first and be fast. Be based on evidence. Be empathic with the people. People have a tough time. No need to put them down a bit more. And then communicate clearly. And always tell concrete things what people can do. Tomorrow morning at 10.30 from the Department of Health, I will give the first press conference on the earthquake in Turkey and Northwest Syria. Tell people concrete things to do. Empathize is very important. I remember three years ago when I became region director, this was also, I mean, this was the first time I had the post without job description. So you have to find out quite a bit yourself. We have a lot of hits. And it was COVID-19. And with this press briefings. I said, listen, if I show this press statement to my granny, she will have no clue what's about. Be real. That's very important to get the trust. And on the healthcare, of course, I mean, it's straightforward. If people are in trouble, they need to be able to know where and how to find their healthcare, which is very easy to say. Of course, not easy, but I love the notion of social capital, both for communicable disease and non-communicable disease. It links a bit the social capital, I think, with the second point of the co-creation. I have been fighting for 20 years TB and MDR-TB, multiplexing tuberculosis, in different parts of the world. And I think that the TB world, but also the, the uh, uh, HIV-AIDS communities, are a very good example of co-creation to involve sectors beyond the health sector. And the civil society is so important. If you want to leave no one behind, you know, WHO and the UN, by definition, our counterpart is the government. And this is very important. But if you really want to leave no one behind, we, we need to combine with civil society, with academicians who can write things that are more difficult for WHO. Not because we deny, but because it's very important that we always keep the door open with all parties. So I think this is a very, very good way what has been done of providing care for the TB. I remember I uh, did uh, a stage in New York, in the Bronx, where Tom Frieden, who later became the director of USCDC, took me by the hand to the most vulnerable. He was always telling the VIP is the patient, to the homeless, and they had interpreters. They were never blaming that the patient didn't come to take their dots, their treatment. No, they were sending social workers to their homes. They knew under which bridge the homeless person was sleeping. So really co-creating and contextualizing. On the geopolitics, we have a very strong principle there that our duty in WHO is not political. Health is not political. I mean, of course, it's heavily influenced by politics. We're not naive, but health for all. I have 53 member states. If there is a child with needs cancer care, we have to do everything we can to make sure that the child has it, whether it lives in UK, Belgium, 
Belarus or Ukraine, we cannot punish the people for the geopolitics. We need help for all, by all. Okay, there's a couple of more questions. I saw a hand up there, and there was one in the middle as well, was there? Hello, I'm Dr. Adekita Tanimawa. I've just completed a, an MSc in Global Health Policy from the University of Edinburgh. And uh, I must say that it's been amazing listening to you. Um, thank you so much for the lecture. So I've got two questions. Um, the first is about uh, another pandemic or epidemic that is brewing, which is like the whole climate change. And somehow it does seem that that conversation has not been well articulated yet, you know, by the WHO. Um, I may be wrong, but then we see, um, you know, the conference that was held at Glasgow, another one is coming, and somehow nothing is really coming of it. Politicians are talking, so, you know, we're here talking about strategy and policy, and this is a potential time bomb that, you know, is going to affect health. Talk of the flooding that happened in Pakistan and all the health um, outcomes. So, what would you say should be our approach to that, um, yeah, as policy individuals? The second thing I want to also speak to is this issue of uh, the, um, um, the militarization of health. We heard of cases of killing healthcare workers and bombing of hospitals, which you yourself alluded to. What should be the policy and strategic approach it is, given that there is increasing conflict happening in the world? These are my questions, but thanks again for a wonderful lecture so far. Thank you. Um, great talk. Tessa Richards, BMJ. I wonder if you could say something uh, about how to tackle disinformation, um, misinformation. Um, you know, chat GPT is not set to help on that front. Don't mention the G word. No. Thank you so much, Dr. Hans, for the wonderful presentation. My name is Ayokumi Shawadi. I'm from Nigeria. I'm studying health policy planning and financing at London School of Economics and London School of Hygiene. Um, my question is two. The first one is, do you think that World Health Organization is equally prepared for both natural disasters, such as the earthquake in Syria and the pandemic? What, it seems as if the responses are not at par. Do you think the preparedness is on the same level for both infectious disease and natural disaster? Then the second one speaks to mental health that you talked about. We know that uh, people that are faced with conflict and crisis are at higher risk of having mental health crisis, especially PSTD. Is there any policy that is addressing their reintegration back into the workspace? Because um, when this crisis happens, their source of livelihood is lost, and there is another stress on the mental health that they are going to face. Is there any policy that the WHO, in conjunction maybe with World Bank, is putting in place to address this gap? Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. So on the issue of the climate change, I would take the point that this needs to be more clearly articulated. Uh, actually, I got this question also the, this morning at the uh, London School of Hygiene and Medicine, so I take this point. There are a number of uh, actions which have been taken. For example, I think that the region did learn some important lessons on 
heat waves and wood fires, which we saw particularly in Southern Europe again and again. So we're working quite a bit on what we call national preparedness plans, which resulted actually in thousands and thousands of less lives lost, particularly in the elderly population. This is one. Same for the floods. I mean, in, in my own country, in Belgium, you could never imagine, and like in Germany, this terrible flood which washed away whole cities, that we still see that this would, would happen. I mentioned the third preventable big risk factor of heart attacks and strokes, the air pollution. I did not mention that our office in Bonn, we have an office in Bonn on health and environment, produced the global, not regional, global guidelines on air quality, which the European Commission, for example, has now incorporated into their legal norms and standards, which is a big success, which is going to save a lot of lives. And then, when I was director of health systems in WHO, before regional director, we launched a program on um, environmental sustainable health systems. My principle is always that we have to get our own house in order before going to another sector to tell what they have to do. And whether we like it or not, hospitals, health sector, is by far one of the biggest polluters in our society, be it on green procurement or on uh, burning uh, waste. But you have a very good point. Actually, that's why we are organizing 5 to 7 July this year in Budapest, the five-yearly ministerial conference on health and environment. And for the first time, we will start with a presidential panel, which, by the way, is a direct outcome of the COVID-19. Previously, we would never get uh, presidents on the health uh, conference, but we have already uh, two, three presidents committing, and more will come. So, Professor Maguire, if you invite me next year, I promise I will have the narrative uh, clearly in mind. We can certainly do that. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Then, militarization of health. This is a very sad uh, evolution. Very sad. Not new. There is now an initiative which is being debated at WHO global level, which is called Health for Peace. Comes from the Eastern Mediterranean region, which is full of emergencies. The red line there is that, and that's what Dr. Tedros, as well as myself, always are very explicit on our social media, that any attack on health, and attack on health can mean healthcare worker, ambulance, hospital, primary healthcare center, is a breach of international humanitarian law. That's a red line, but unfortunately, it happens every day. And that's a very, very worrying trend, and we need to tackle this at the highest possible level, including at UN General Assembly in New York. Then, very nice to see you, Tessa. Again, that's a very big one. Whenever I have my quarterly talk with Dr. Anthony Fauci, is the first thing he talks about, this information, because obviously he's suffering so much from that uh, himself, this information and the fake news. Actually, he told me last time, he said, Hans, it's good that you tell me I have many friends in Europe, because maybe one day I will have to seek refuge in Europe. <laughs> I say you're very welcome, Dr. Fauci. But it's a very difficult one. So, of course, here we do a lot with, for example, 
the uh, social media, I must say that uh, Google, Facebook, and all ones have been very forthcoming on that one to make sure that if people Google, for example, COVID-19 or this or that, that the evidence base comes on top, which is already very important. So there, I uh, doing much more better. Number two is that there, of course, we need a close link between the politicians and the scientists. I think the Netherlands is a good example. Whatever initiative they're doing is that actually it's an example of co-creation that instead of scientists doing the job and then presenting the report, they involve the politicians from the very beginning to co-create the outcomes and give them some ownership. Of course, it goes much slower, but then at least you have the co-ownership. That is definitely one which is not solved yet. We have to do also more work on that one. Each time I go to the US, I mean, it's very frightening because if you see this polarization in society, this is very, very uh, frightening. But I think as a public health leader, we have a big thing to do. This is a very interesting question. Are we better prepared as WHO in, uh, for natural disasters or pandemics? I think we can never be prepared enough. I think we do much better. But the magnitude and the scale of the earthquake in southern Turkey and northwest Syria, I mean, surpasses any imagination. Turkey, by the way, is a country which is internationally known for having a lot of expertise in and always helping a lot of other countries globally in natural disasters. But the president recently was uh, telling it, uh, in the media that this also surpassed, I mean, any capacity. Definitely, we are not there yet. Actually, very interesting, I got this point at the meeting I just had before coming here at the Foreign Affairs Office, Foreign Office of uh, Commonwealth and Development, on, for example, coordination, it's still a big issue now, is coordination of what we call EMTs, emergency medical teams. So many countries which are coming in, some certified by WHO, some not, some allowed by Turkey, some not allowed, but they are there. And everyone falling uh, over its uh, feet. And then also geopolitics. I hear stories of some teams who say, yeah, but we are, you know, in that area, but we don't have so much uh, visibility. I mean, it's about a rescue effort. So we need to do better. I'm very committed in the WHO European region to be very fast. But it doesn't always depend on you. Right? Again, you have to take into account the national sovereignty. Mental health in the workspace, we're doing a lot. Mental health is so-called flagship priority in our region. We launched a pan-European mental health coalition, which was launched by the Queen of Belgium, Queen Mathilde. And we're getting more and more famous personalities involved. Why? Because the key there is to take mental health conditions out of the dark corner and put it at the heart of society. I always say a mentally healthy population is the beating heart of a prosperous society. 22-23 March, we have a regional conference, all 50 countries, hosted by the Minister of Health of Romania in Bucharest, 
on sustainable health workforce and there's a big chunk on the mental health of the health workforce, which we have to get right. Again, many countries did a lot, for example, Ireland. And it doesn't have to be complicated always. If you have a, a health facility, have a focal point on mental health that everyone knows who to approach. If people have to work 24-7 for weeks and months, the pandemic or the earthquake, take care not only of the healthcare worker, but also of their children. If I have to provide, you know, to, to travel, and, and there is something wrong with the family, you cannot concentrate, right? So that's uh, key, and I'm very happy to share some very good materials we have on mental health in the workplace. I wonder if you could take the mic down to the front row, because we've got a virtual audience, and Dan ah, can yes. give us yes. some yes. questions from those. Thanks very much, that's Kluger. Uh, we've had quite a few questions, I'm just going to try and boil a few down around a couple of key areas. So one has been around digital health solutions, so you mentioned about the need for transformation in health systems, but how can we continue to make the case to governments to invest in digital health solutions in crumbling health systems? And also, how can we make sure that this doesn't exacerbate inequities from a global health policy perspective? Uh, another question uh, from uh, Colleen Flood at the University of Ottawa. So, while it's true that the perspective and insights of different health providers and patients can be really helpful in informing health policy, how do we do that in practice, given the different economic interests uh, the different types of providers, different types of regulators and needs of very different patients. Uh, in Canada there's been a particular issue with individual physicians and the medical associations having a sort of outsized influence on health policy. So how do, how do you manage that in practice? Too virtual and that gives the live people time to think. Yes. Good night. Thank you very much for sharing your insightful, hopeful and optimistic uh, spirit with us tonight. I would like to ask you, um, initially we can see that we have good examples of multidisciplinarity, of patient and healthcare workers, um, values putting forward, breaking silos in different uh, fields of collaboration at local level. But then when uh, there's the um, wanted to uh, scale it up, we see inefficiencies to put forward these same good practices. Is this all about political will, competitive interests of actors within the health environment? Um, and in this case, can you recommend what are your views to align perspectives and goals? You already mentioned co-ownership and reducing the gap between science and politics. Can you please elaborate on that? Thank you very much. So on the digital health, if I understand how to make the case to invest in digital health when health systems are crumbling and to avoid exacerbation of inequities, if I understood it right. So the good thing is everyone talks about digital nowadays. It's like one health. If you want to come over as very intellectual and someone asks you, what are you doing? I say, I'm doing one half. Say, oh, 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 but if you ask people, what does he mean one half? It's something different. So, digital health, the agenda is there and the investment is there. The key issue, I think, here, 
and I think hope I on, it answers the question, is that we need to strengthen. Actually, where's the camera, Professor? I would like to look to the camera. Ahead. Ah, yes, okay, yes, for to the invisible. Uh, yeah, I think question. we're in the in in the okay, yes, box. Yes. 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 So it's, it's basically to strengthen capacity in the ministries of health to invest in the right tools. I think investments are there and money is there. But because of suboptimal quality in public health agencies, they are industry driven. And so much money is wasted. Issues of interoperability and not involving the end user, etc. And that is the first objective of the first pan-European action plan we got approved at my last governing board meeting in Tel Aviv in September last year on digital health. Strengthen capacity in ministry of health and public agencies to themselves guide investments in digital health. I love the point about inequities. Actually, bravo for bringing this up because I hear this very rarely. But this is a very big concern. And this is at the core of WHO's guardianship on leaving no one behind. That we will speak out if we see that digital drastically increases instead of decreases the digital health inequalities, be it on digital health illiteracy or other ones. Question number two. Yes, some, that's a good one. I think it was at a meeting in a conference in Poland that one panelist told it really has to be driven by patients. Other colleague told, no, it has to be driven uh, top down. I believe in balance. You know, life is all about the balance. So it's not because one party, be it patients or insurers or ministry says it's like that, that is 100%. We need to listen to all parties and then, according to our objectives, make a consensus and move forward based on the values of equity, integrity and solidarity. So I take this. It's very important to have the patient perspective, but we also know that sometimes there's a group which is financed by the private industry, which may have a little bit of different opinion. So. What I learned is do the homework. We have to do the homework and have balanced approach in life. Third point about the local level. WHO has networks now. This is, I think, quite innovative because by mandate, by constituency, our counterparts are the federal level, but we have now a huge network, for example, on healthy cities on regions for health. And actually, we had a very interesting discussion also at the, the BMA uh, this morning on that one with the Public Health Authority of London telling how the mayor of London is really convinced of implementing public health solutions for the better health and well-being of the people. The link between scientists and politicians I think maybe come back a little bit to the, the point that Tessa made. Of course, if you have a politician who does not believe in science, you're in trouble. Right? And we have uh, seen this. 
what can we say? Maybe I can come back to the point how important it is to have civil society, to have non-government, strong, strong non-government organizations to speak up and to hold the government accountable. We as WHO will never blame and shame, but what we do is to put countries of a similar geography, similar income level, together. Five, six countries with similarities and let them present their policies and their results. I call it a kind of soft benchmarking. There was a question here and one at the front and one right in the middle, just to challenge the microphone. Hi, my name is Katie. I'm in the Masters of International Migration and Public Policy here at LSE. I wanted to ask you about the you kept on reiterating the leave no one behind and I wanted to ask about say those who are refugees or those seeking protection, those in refugee camps, how does the WHO ensure the right to health and ensure that they do receive care? Um, it might speak a bit more to your experience in Médecins Sans Frontières for example but I just wanted to have you elaborate more on that if possible. Hi, um, my name is Leanne and I work in the NHS on AI strategy. Uh, we've had a few ministers this last year or so, um, and so working on strategy has been a bit challenging, to say the least. So I'm just wondering, how do you, in your daily kind of day or week, manage that sort of dual track? How do you keep on the short, you know, delivering on these emergencies, but thinking about the long term and keeping all those stakeholders and everything, you know, managed? Thank you. Hi, um, I'm Kabi. I'm a student here at the Masters of International Health Policy. Um, my question, I'm not exactly sure if it pertains to your current role, but just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Um, so I guess one of the major challenges that a lot of countries now are facing looking into the future is how to adapt their health systems to an aging population. I just was wondering how you foresee that adaptation taking place and what sort of um, measures countries could take to actually deal with that change. Three quite diverse questions. Yes, yes, absolutely. Fascinating. So, did I understand that the first question is to share some experience, personal experience on leaving no one behind? Some experience and insight how it's ensured that those seeking protection are protected by their own states or in another state's territory, but that state's not providing them healthcare. How does that facilitate I mean, MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, Dr. World Borders, almost by definition works in a lot of those contexts in order to leave no one behind. So first and foremost, of course, you have to believe in it. I think that's very important, because otherwise you're not going to hold on. I mean, you work basically 24-7 in uh, very dangerous uh, circumstances. I had uh, Charles Taylor standing two times in front of me in Liberia, threatening to cut off my head. If I was not going to do surgery on the boy soldier he had, instead of prioritizing a pregnant woman was going to have a miscarriage, which really needed it. At that time, of course, probably I was more brave than now, I don't know. But I told him off, basically. And then he was very amazed how brave I was and invited me to drink a cup of homemade rice wine. 
which unfortunately I did, and spoiled my stomach for the rest of my life. <laughs> but you have to really believe in it with determination. I didn't think of my own uh, right uh, uh, at that time uh, safety, but you have a big responsibility for the team. And here I would like to make a particular point, a very painful lesson that uh, MSF also learned, that you as an expatriate can evacuate, because I was in some very dangerous uh, situations in uh, my life with uh, MSF that I had to evacuate. I could evacuate, but the national staff could not evacuate. And there's sometimes I still have nightmares from, because I did leave people behind. My own uh, team of uh, Liberian doctors and nurses, for example, and God knows what happened with them. Did they have some revenge? The same in Somalia. In Somalia was my first uh, outpost, was civil war. I think there were only two agencies which still work there because there was complete lack of any rule or law. It was MSF typical and Caritas Italiana, Catholic organization from Italy, who then also got a doctor shot. And there was there a terrible practice of uh, unhygienic and quite uh, cruel uh, female circumcision. And there we were standing strong on this uh, issue, right, in, in, in human rights and of the girl. But then the girl ultimately returned back from the hospital to the local community where we did not have any leverage. So, leaving no one behind needs determination, you have to believe in it, but you really have to be aware of the local context if you want to protect people also if you're not there. And that's what my professor of public health taught me at the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp, where I graduated. If you go to a place, always observe for six months, appreciate, acknowledge the local habits and the culture, right? Be very, very modest. And the more experience I get, the more long I would say that period, period should take, really. Dual track, how to pull it off daily. I have a principle of step-by-step -step approach. Baby steps can have a huge impact. If you look also in the private sector on huge innovations, it's rarely by a big bang. It's by a lot of discipline. The Japanese, Toyota called it Kaizen, continuous improvement involving all employees. And one concrete one is, for example, on strengthening primary health care. Because if you strengthen community care, primary health care, informal care, the health system automatically will be strengthened by, with a dual-track approach, will be much better prepared to deal with emergencies, and at the same time with chronic diseases or infectious diseases. The same for the health workforce. No health without health workforce. We value the health workforce, we appreciate the health workforce, we invest in the health workforce. You'll have nurses ready to tackle a pandemic, and you have nurses ready to tackle obesity together with the schools, etc. How to adapt health to aging? 
I think this is one of the next frontier together with the climate change, definitely. Actually, we're planning to go to a study visit to Japan. Japan has no digital, digital 5.0 to digitalize the whole society. So they don't speak about digital health, they speak about digitalizing the whole society because they have their, such a rapid aging population. They have no other choice. So in that sense, one of the first things to do is to strengthen the link between health and social care, which in many countries got, got broken. Speaking about leaving no one behind, we left many people behind in not at least high-income countries in our region during the pandemic, in elderly homes. Because the workers were not skilled. And then when they got visits by Minister of Health, they sometimes got blamed. They say, we didn't get the personal protective equipment. We, we don't have the, the capacities. We don't have the, the skills. So we really need to strengthen that link between health and social care. Actually, the boyfriend of one of my daughters previously was working voluntary in elderly homes. I'm not going to say which country, but if you hear the stories of a high-income high income country in Scandinavia, which terrible stories. There are no people to take care of our elderly people. It's basic. They fall out of their bed. They have to wait till the morning in their own fishes. I mean, it's the stories that we heard is terrible. I mean, this link is seriously broken and we have to start with the very, very basics before we go to complicated digital solutions. On digital points, so we'll go back to our virtual audience and maybe just take three more questions from them. Hi there, okay, so we've got uh, quite a few again, but I'm just going to pick three out. So we have one from Chetan Sharma, who's a public health consultant in India. Uh, what are the specific strategies that are needed to reclaim lost trust due to the misinformation and infodemic during the pandemic? And how do we stop these spillover effects and public mistrust around routine immunizations? Uh, we've got another question from David Sagradian, who's a medical student at Bart. So against the backdrop of uh, industrial action and strikes in the NHS, uh, what is your take on approaching this feeling of underappreciation from medical and clinical staff from the point of governments? And finally, there's a question uh, here. So a final question from Ranjani, uh, Ranjana Nagi, who's uh, one of our alumni, wants to ask, what advice would you give to the next generation of health policy leaders that are working towards more equitable health outcomes but may feel some of the setbacks and discouragement from the enormity of these polycrises uh, poly and permacrises? The first two maybe I will take together because it comes back to the core of my presentation about trust and transformation. Two co-create the solutions. We need this partnership between the people at the front line, the patients, the healthcare workers, the informal carers, and the politicians. In the two examples I gave in Sweden and Kazakhstan, it worked out very well. Of course, you have to have a minimum of political commitment. That's for sure. And further, as I was mentioning on the trust, be as transparent as you can be. You'd be surprised how much people are willing 
to forgive you for a mistake as long as you are transparent about it. My father was a chief surgeon in Belgium and he was telling, is something went wrong during the operation? Many doctors shy away to go and see the patient. On the contrary, go to see the patient twice. Don't shy away. Advice in general or The last, last one, one, the last one. The last one. Oh, advice for future health policy leaders. Uh, ah, yes. How do you keep optimistic? Yes. Okay, that's a great question. Great question. I would say, go to the field. I see sometimes brilliant people coming from academic and wanting to work with that organization or this organization. I strongly believe that a main factor that I am where I am is because I made my hands dirty as a clinician, as a public health leader at the front line. After that, I can tell you, very few people can fool you. Number one. Number two, if you create policy, I'm going to think, how is it going to change the life of the patient, of the people in reality, instead of coming up with something theoretical and then you will see you will suffer a lot obviously but you will see so much beauty I mean I was taught so much by the Liberian nurses I had a very sound education as a medical doctor at the Catholic University in Louvain which has a very high reputation but ultimately I mean I realized very theoretical and I was thrown in this hospital in Nimba, it's northern province in Liberia. And the nurse in Liberia, I mean, wonderful, really. But doctor, don't you see? I mean, that's a child with tetanus. How can you not tell me this? I mean, I've never seen a child with tetanus in uh, my life, right? Or whatever. So then, the families lost a lot of children. But the gratitude when a child was saved, that's why I was standing at the end, right? Every child, every life is priceless. So let no one ever tell you, oh, you don't save enough. The child which was saved in southern Turkey, when many rescue teams want to give up, if this is my baby, I mean, I will be eternally grateful. So the advice is, go and suffer a little bit on the field. Right? And you will come back with a lot of appreciation and optimism. Of course, if you're a student, finish your exams first. <laughs> <laughs> that my father told me to. <laughs> I, I think um, we're going to wrap it up now. And uh, I, I certainly take three things away. One is a promise to come back next year. Um, second is what a great wide and deep talk we've had tonight. And the third one is what you always get from Hans, optimism, which is great and really needed at this time, I think. So thank you very much, Hans, for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
you can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.